The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, everyone. I'm Leah Smart, and welcome to In the Arena, a LinkedIn self-development podcast. Our show explores the vulnerable aspects of the human experience to inspire transformation. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin. She's a licensed psychologist and executive coach with a focus in career advancement, leadership development, and job transitions. What does she encounter most? Imposter syndrome. And her first book, Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt, and Succeed in Life, is packed with reflective tools and work anyone can use to overcome it. Now, before I go any further, you might be wondering, what is imposter syndrome? Do I have it? And if I do, is it curable? First, yes, it's curable and you will make it through. Second, here's what imposter syndrome is. It's the experience of constantly feeling like a fraud, downplaying your accomplishments, and always being concerned about being exposed as incompetent or incapable. More importantly, here's what Lisa shares it can actually do to us. It can render our credentials worthless to our advancement, to our earnings, and to having agency over our lives. And it can plague us with an overwhelming need for security which sadly won't be found in that promotion, person, or place. Have I convinced you to keep listening? I can't imagine why not. (laughs) Sounds pretty spooky, right? But here's what Lisa's up to. She's helping us all own our greatness. And what I know for sure is beneath every hardship or challenge, there's potential. And that potential is for you to become even more powerful, compassionate, and self-accepting as a human being. My big takeaways? Imposter syndrome is what our psychology friends call a transitional object. We hold on to it for security and comfort. You might be wondering, why would I hold on to something harmful? Well, because if we believe it serves us in some way, whether we're aware of it or not, we will. But Lisa says all imposter syndrome actually does is remove our joy in moments that could be centered around success and celebration. She also gave me a favorite new acronym, ANTS. These are automatic negative thoughts, which are thoughts that influence our behavior when our imposter syndrome is triggered. Our ANTS will do everything from mind read, label, fortune tell, catastrophize, and compare ourselves to others unfairly. Finally, you are not alone. And if you can muster up the courage to call someone you trust who's been supportive of you to share that you've been experiencing imposter syndrome, you might hear a me too or an I've been there. I sure hope you do. That's all for me. Enjoy. So what if you woke up tomorrow and you didn't have to deal with your imposter syndrome? Do you decide who you want to work with beforehand or is it just like anybody who wants you can get to you and get to your work? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're looking for typically people in the master class who can commit, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, you know, we're going to go through the book, we're going to do it in 12 weeks, and it's going to be intense. And you're going to have to be vulnerable with people you've never met before. And like, you're gonna have to do it week after week after week. And it's a hard thing to commit to. So I'm looking for someone who who gets that and who who really understands that's the commitment, who's really ready to make this change, really willing to look inside to make the change. I'm looking for people who generally because of what it is, 
that this is the sole issue that they're generally dealing with. If you have a lot of other antecedent, other kind of issues going on, it's too hard to make the, the group the sole focus. Like there's other things that are going on that are impacting you. So I'm looking for people where imposter syndrome is the central issue, where there's not a lot of other things going on, because I'm going to need their sole focus on this area for 12 weeks. I'm looking for a particular person in the group. And I'm also looking for somebody who knows how to not only work on their issues, but also be supportive to other people because we have like a community and the community is the key to in some ways that one of the keys to the success is that people look forward to seeing each other and look forward to seeing each other struggle, like in the sense that I'm going to be here for you if you struggle. And also when they win, they're there too. And they're just like wanting to be celebrating the wins. And so you have to know how to do that too. So if I see someone really wants individual work, that's not where the masterclass is the best. It's really about people who can do the group work. And really the central issue is the imposter syndrome. You mentioned community and it's something I've been thinking about too. When I started doing a little bit of work that was around like subconscious and just unblocking my, you know, I was looking at your narr- the narratives piece, right? Like unblocking narratives that I had Not necessarily about, I guess it would be related to imposter syndrome, but it was about money for me. And I remember when I started, it was an online course that I did and there was no community. And I can remember the moment that I was like, oh my God, it was, so I'd stayed home in New York. My family's in California. I'd stayed home over Christmas and I was like, I'm just going to dive into this work. And I dove in and I unlocked some scary stuff. I was like, (laughs) I remember being like, I need people around me and I immediately, you know, found and hired my therapist on January 1st because I was like, this has to happen. Is that something you did on purpose? Like, how did you know the community was so meaningful? Because community is important to overcoming imposter syndrome really centrally, because oftentimes we're dealing with it very alone. And, you know, people don't know we're actually contending with this. They think our lives are awesome and we're killing it. And like what they don't see is how internally we feel like we're not killing it and how we feel like we're failing and how we are harping on this mistake. And it's such a secret experience oftentimes that the community piece of it is part of the healing of it is to start saying to people, yeah, I feel like I screwed up. I did this thing. Here's where I'm harping. Here's where, you know, my shame is around this, like really being able to talk about it in a group. And you see such a, a spark in someone's eye when they see somebody else say their story, even though it, it's not them. And they're like, Oh, my God, that's my story. Because they've often felt like they're alone in this. And to see somebody else who they respect, and they admire, because they're also doing cool things makes them feel like, Oh, my gosh, there's not something wrong with me. It, it happens to a lot of people. And I can do something about this. And I think that's what makes it super special is that, you know, people feel not alone. And, and feel like they not only sometimes sharing their own stories, helping them, but also helping other people in the, in the small groups. And I think that's been really powerful. It's I think it's what's made it be so quick in kind of overcoming it is that they feel a sense of accountability to each other and to the work because they know if I don't come, someone will miss me. And so I think that's really critical for them. There's like a coming out that happens yeah. when you're in a community. Like I, I had an experience not with imposter syndrome, but with being spiritual, like coming out spiritual for me yeah. was something. And I was like, okay, I need to start, I can start telling people. And then all of a sudden you realize it's not so scary. And that sounds like it's this secret experience is what you're talking about. Yeah. And I think oftentimes when you have imposter syndrome, you're really tamped down, you're really closed in, you're really shut down. And so in letting it out, there is a blossoming of like, yeah, I am spiritual or yeah, I like to wear bright clothes to work. This is who I am. I don't need to conform to your ideas of success anymore. What do I want to look like in my own success? And I think that's like the beauty when I see the kind of like literally people look changed. You know, I remember somebody in the, in the master class when they first started the master class, we do it on video and I couldn't see them. 
Like there was no lighting. They were like a shadow. And I was like, I, you know, we would remark on it and comment on it still, you know, it, it got a little bit lighter. But by the end, they had a bright light. I was like, you have a light on. And they were like, I feel like being seen now. And I think that is so critical about this. There's something about being seen fully as your whole self in all the warts and all that feels, I think, a part of sort of the process of dealing with it. Well, if that isn't a metaphor, I don't know what <laughs> is going from like being dark. I'm imagining this person when they interview people in the witness protection who are in this shadow and their voices like is muffled with the the layovers and then slowly you actually get coming like being more visible. It was very metaphorical, but very also we could literally watch it happen. And I think it's true for almost everyone. There's a bit of like kind of covering a lot of people ask me when think about joining the course, they say, is it confidential? They're very paranoid about sort of like people knowing. And then at the end, people are like telling people publicly, I have imposter syndrome they're on their instagrams like i have imposter and like i've you know and i've dealt with it i feel a lot better about it like there there's just a freedom to kind of not feel like you have to hide anymore in order to be valued or respected or you know or successful or whatever it might be lisa you're leading the charge in this and i always imagine when i speak to people who are helping profession supportive profession there's a deeper meaning for you and so i'd love to know like why this work and then what is imposter syndrome for all of us out there going, do I have it? Do I not? Yeah. So I, I'll start with the what is imposter syndrome first. It's the experience when you are credentialed, skilled, experienced, have like real deal skills and abilities, but you haven't internalized them. And as a result of not internalizing them, you are fearing being exposed as a fraud. So making a mistake, doing something wrong exposes you as a fraud. As a result of that fear, you either overwork or self-sabotage to cover up the perceived fraudulence and struggle to take any positive feedback in around your performance, which is usually positive because we're typically high achievers and we do well. And that sort of is the cycle. And so we engage in that cycle many, many times every time we're triggered for the imposter syndrome. No, we don't experience it all the time, but when we're typically triggered. And I think to your question about like what makes me so passionate about it is because I experienced it myself. I lived it pretty profoundly much of my early career and throughout my doctoral program. And it wasn't until I had an experience in a job where I was being was super toxic toxic with a very toxic boss. He'd been really horrible to me and had been rough. And I was trying to leave and my husband was trying to convince me to leave. And I felt stuck. I felt like as if my feet were in cement. And he would be like, just apply for something or just I literally felt like I couldn't do it. And I was in a meeting with all the senior staff was women. And we were all in a, a meeting with our boss and there was music playing. And somebody asked, what is this music that's playing in the background? And he said, music to soothe the savage breast. And in that one moment, I felt like I, I saw everything. It was like, my, you know, all of it sort of flashed and became apparent to me. And I was like, I can't keep living like this. This is going to get only worse. And I don't want to live like this. And it's really preventing me from doing other things. At the time, I didn't even know what those other things really were. And I got out of that meeting. I called my husband. I was like, I'm going to quit. And he was like, quit. He's like, I've been dying for you to quit. And I cleared out my office over the weekend, cleared out my computer. And Monday, I, I walked into the office with my keys. I remember hearing my footsteps. They were pounding on the linoleum. And I quit. And he was furious. And he cried. And he yelled at me and told me I'd never work in like I was working in education. I never work in education again. It was terrifying. It was all my worst fears come to light. I knew I had to go and I, it was not just leaving him, but I was leaving this life of living in my imposter syndrome. And so literally leaving, I had a panic attack when I got home. It was bad. But I was like, I just kept thinking to myself, just put one foot in front of the other, keep putting one foot in front of the other. Eventually it won't be like this. And then within two weeks, I had another job. It was making more than I was making before. I like, I started my practice and then kind of the 
rest is history. And oftentimes people ask me like, what can you tell people about what it's like to live after imposter syndrome? I don't know if I could have ever dreamed about what it would have been like. I don't think I could have imagined a life this good in the sense that I never would have allowed myself to dream these things. I really just thought I, I was going to live a pretty constricted life. Um, and I was just going to kind of make it through. And maybe people didn't believe that who saw me from the external, but that's what I thought inside. And I would have never thought I would have written a book. I never would have thought I would start my own practice. I would have never thought I would have an Instagram following. I would have never thought any of those things because I never thought I was good enough to do any of those things. And so it has changed my life in a lot of those ways. It's important because it's not just what it's like to be in imposter syndrome, but what it's like to live after imposter syndrome. But what I hear is imposter syndrome keeps you really small and inside of that circle. Yes. What's it like to feel like an imposter? It's like a secret. I mean, I think you feel like you just don't want anyone to know that you're feeling this and you don't want them to discover what you know, which is that you don't belong here or you're not good enough or you don't know X, or you don't know Y, or you don't know Z. It feels very terrifying and it feels like every single you know moment in which you are public or have a moment of visibility that you're going to show accidentally what you don't know, then everything is gone. Like, just like what he said to me, like, he's like, you'll never work like you. That's your worst fear is like, it'll all, you know, you'll lose it all. It's all being held up by like spit and glue and like, but it's not it's being held up by your experience, your ambitions, your skills, your abilities, your credentials, it's being held up by all of that. But we don't see it because we haven't internalized it. In your book in chapter six, you talk about silencing ants. And you've been talking a lot about ants lately, which I love that acronym. Can you share a little bit about what that is and how we can work through and combat our ants? Sure. It's a concept that comes from cognitive behavioral therapy, automatic negative thoughts. And it happens when we're triggered for imposter syndrome. And we have like this automatic negative thought that comes by. So for example, you have to give a talk and it's like two weeks away and you're like, oh my God, I'm going to really blow it. I get really nervous. I get really flustered. And those are the automatic negative thoughts that sort of are like coming after you to tell you how badly you're going to do. So they're telling you a distorted story about what's possible. As a result of having that ant, we then choose a behavior. Imposter syndrome oftentimes it's over-functioning. So it's like, I'm going to screw up so bad. So I'm going to write every single word out of that speech so that I don't mess up. We engage in over-functioning in a way that isn't healthy for us, leads to burnout, sometimes sets us up to fail. Like for example, the script development, chances are you're not going to repeat that script word for word. You're going to screw up at some point and then you're going to blame yourself. We do things that can set us up through this idea of over-functioning and overworking or the self-sabotage. And typically for people with imposter syndrome, the self-sabotage looks like procrastination followed by short bursts of overwork, which lead to burnout to like working 14 hours on something right before it's due. So I think the answer is so important to combat because it's really teaching people that you are not your thoughts, you are the observer of your thoughts, the very famous Amit Ray quote. And I think it's so important to learn that you can have power over the thoughts and you can have an ability to discern which thoughts are useful to you and productive and which thoughts are not necessarily helpful in putting you down particular roads. And I think that's what we're teaching when we do that chapter is trying to look at and observe your thoughts and make choices choices about how you're going to deal with them and respond to them. I was laughing because you you labeled some of the ants that have been discussed more broadly, things like mind reading. So believing we can interpret what people are thinking, labeling, fortune telling, which is one that I see so often and I myself experience comparisons, right? So unfair comparisons, I want to be clear, you're setting unfair, unrealistic standards, right? By which you judge yourself. And as I was going through this process, I love that what you did was you said, how can you challenge your aunt? And one of the ways was to ask a question or create two questions to challenge. For mine, for example, and I wonder how you kind of got to this point of understanding this was important, but 
for mine, it was like using the example of an ant and I'm going to mess this up, whatever this is. And my question was so simple. It was just, how do you know? Yeah. How do you know you're going to mess this up? Where's the evidence that you're going to mess this up? Have you ever messed this up before? How many times have you messed it up in the proportion of how many times you've actually done it? Sometimes if we ever made a mistake or messed something up, the one time it acts as if it's been a hundred times. And so really teaching ourselves to be able to look at the evidence, look at the data. Where's the data that you are screw up? Where's the concrete data? Would other people think that about you? Can you work on trying to believe them? We don't believe people when they tell us you're never going to, you're fantastic. We're like, they're just, they just like us. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know when I screwed up that last time. We have trouble trusting people who value us or think that we are actually worthy of things. What I think is really key about the ants that you just shared is our automatic negative thoughts precede a behavior. You can start to look at what behaviors have I gone out into the world and done or what have my behaviors looked like and what might have preceded those thoughts. And so looking at that made me realize, gosh, you could live an entire life in experiences of imposter syndrome and never realize that you're Thoughts are connected to your behavior. And those thoughts make you choose certain things. Like, for example, I remember when I used to interview for a job, I'm just so happy to get the job. I'm not going to negotiate. I don't want to make them mad. That's the thought. So then I don't negotiate. I then end up with a salary that I'm unhappy with. But partially it was because I didn't even bother to kind of figure out what is the market rate? What, what do I want? I just said, I'll take whatever you give me. And so it, it then did affect my life tremendously. And I didn't really ever look at sort of how the thought around, I don't want to make anyone mad at me in a negotiation led to not negotiating or bothering to. And how many of us have said, I mean, I know imposter syndrome started with research on it just being women, but how many of us, no matter who we are, have said, I'm just happy to get the offer. I'm just happy to be in the relationship or whatever. Get the car. Yeah. I'm happy to be out of the job search or whatever it is. So where does all this come from? You know, popular press or in in common articles. Oh, it comes from social media. Oh, the most popular one now is it comes from oppression. There's no data to suggest that it actually comes from these sources. People from privileged groups experience it. People from non-privileged groups experience it. There are different potential outcomes from it that are related to race and gender and things like that, but it doesn't originate it. What originates it is early childhood roles and family dynamics. That's what the research has showed over 40 years. Oftentimes, people who have imposter syndrome get caught in very particular roles, such as the intelligent one in their family. And so they get thought of as, oh, everything comes easy to you. So if anything ever came hard, you were like, oh, that's proof that I'm not as smart as everyone thinks I am. Or the the hardworking one, you're not considered the smart one in the family, you're considered the one who who has grit and knows how to work hard and everything must come from hard work. And as a result of that, you never get to see your strengths, your natural abilities, you never get to see the things that come easy because you don't see that. You just see hard work equals me getting something or me getting performance. Those two are the ones that are talked about in the research. But when my husband and I were writing the book, we were like, there's a third one. We've seen a third one in our practice that doesn't really incorporate one in two. And we call it the survivor. And that's the person either had abuse or non-support from family, from parents or caregivers. And as a result, success and achievements were a way out. And so they don't ever see it as an accomplishment. They see it as an ability to get out from one place to another or to survive. And so they've never been able to take in their natural skills or talents or gifts. They've just felt like it is a method of survival. And they often feel like one wrong move and I could lose everything. What you're doing is combining a lot of the work of therapy with the work of coaching, which is looking back, but with the purpose of being able to move forward in a very intentional way. In your book, you have us write out this you know, family dynamic and do a family genome just to look 
And I think that's what's so hard for many people is like having to look and kind of be with that. Yeah. And I think it's the hardest part of the book is the first three chapters where it's really about sort of where did this come from? Like you were just saying about my approach, which is a combination of therapeutic and coaching. I'm not looking at sort of where it came from to blame anyone, to torture you. It's really about those early dynamics that set this in motion are the same dynamics that are occurring today. And if you can identify them and you can know them well, you can see them in your present day. And when you can see them in your present day, you can put an end to the cycle. And that's why we do it. We do it so that you can see, you can see the landscape. Instead of like we were talking about the experience of being so pulled in, you're going to be much more broader eyed about things. And so I think that's why we do it. It's not to hurt or to open old wounds is to kind of be strategic about looking at why does it happen now and why does it happen in particular circumstances? Something I notice is the challenge people have in doing any sort of self-development. You can look at loved ones, friends, people around you and go, wow, that person would really benefit from something like this. What do you think that's about? It is about the feeling of like, my imposter syndrome got me where I am. If you take it away from me, I will be unsuccessful. I am not willing to let go of this thing because I don't trust that I'm going to be successful or accomplished in the same way without it. And so they cling to it like a security blanket. And meanwhile, it's hurting them. Imposter syndrome didn't make you successful. The only thing it did for you was take away your joy around your success. Because the correlates of imposter syndrome are to anxiety, to depression, to to low self-esteem, to feelings of things around not being able to negotiate or be able to ask for more, or it also correlates to organizational loyalty, even when the organization isn't loyal to you. And so it leads to all these negative things that are worth letting go that are going to be helpful to you in whatever you want to do with your life. But oftentimes we feel a loyalty bind to it that makes us feel like if we let it go, it's all going to fall apart. And that sounds like it's one of the myths of imposter syndrome is it's sort of this thing we want to hold on to. I'm imagining like whatever your stuffed animal was when you were a kid. Yeah. Like and a if transitional you let go object, of it, we call it. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> there we go. Yeah. It's a transitional object. Yep. And what's underneath is I love that you say all imposter syndrome has done is remove your joy. Yeah. It's not made you successful, but you know, I think that's why people resist it when they struggle is like, I'm not a hundred percent bought into the fact that if you remove it from me, that I'm going to be successful. The LinkedIn podcast network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story, 
and the lessons that follow. Listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. There's something interesting about some of these veneers and I know, you know, in looking at the work that you do, that it's underneath a lot of it, which is the idea of building up your self-worth. I start to, I'm starting to see more and more how low a lot of our self-worth is and how many transitional objects, you know, we're holding on to that feel like us or our worth. Yeah. How can we start to build that back up? It's really hard. And I think it behooves us to kind of really recognize that we are worthy without any of it, without the job, without the whatever, the partner, whatever, that we are worthy in and of ourselves, no matter how flawed or whatever, like we are just worthy in this human shell that is imperfect. Like we don't get taught that. I think we get taught worthiness through accomplishments, achievements, like what did you do? Not who have you been? Paradigm, I think it really behooves us as like, you know, those of us who work with children or have, you know, who have children or who are aunties or to really teach teach kids that they are worthy just the way they are. They don't need to get A's in school. We we get taught this. And then it, then we wonder, how come I don't have self-worth? It's like, you've been taught this your whole life. That you're only wor- as good as your last accomplishment, your last achievement. And I think that's what we have to move away with from as a culture, you know, is that we have to teach people from very early on that we are worthy just the way we are. Even having being flawed, making a mistake, doing something bad, like you still are worthy. And I think that's a really important concept. It's not the same as self-esteem. And it is a concept unto itself around self-worth that is about just you as a person right now, right here being worth something. With this type of work, you know, I, I go back and forth between some work that feels more psychological and some that feels more spiritual. And so in that kind of like psycho-spiritual space, my sense has been in my own journey and seeing others that oftentimes self-worth is actually related to not just psychological, but there's a true core shift in a person when they build that up. Have you seen that in your communities you've built? Yeah, I mean, I think when you start to recognize that you are worthy just in the present state of your being, I think there is a feeling of boundary. There's a feeling of I have a right to assert certain things. I have a right to certain things. I think it does really create a sense of now I'm overusing the word, but worthiness that I think can be super powerful. And I think there is something very spiritual about the concept. And I think concept exists very much in spirituality about you are worthy just the way you are. Whatever spiritual practice you believe in, or if you believe in none, the idea is really about just as you are, you are enough. And I think that's also really important for imposter syndrome because we have a lot of perfectionistic tendencies and we often feel never enough. And that this concept of being enough is foreign to us and practicing the idea of being enough just as we are is is something we have to actively practice. What was surprising as you were doing this research and writing this book? The intention with the book was... You know, there have been a lot of books written about imposter, not a ton, but some written about imposter syndrome. And they mostly describe the experience. And for me, I, I remembered having the experience and I remembered being like, I needed a way out. I needed to understand what I needed to do to get out of it. And I don't know if I had like a methodology. The book became really important to us to, to create a program, an idea of like, take this step, then take that step. And what does the research say? And what does it tell us? And how do we think about this holistically? The thing I was surprised about was how people responded to it. I didn't realize the amount of people that it would resonate with and how clearly I wanted the book to be successful. I based it on research. I knew that it could, but to see it actually work it was surprising and delightful and like a joy. It was like to see the book work and to see people actually 
change and to write me letters. That's been the most surprising and like delightful thing. Like it's what I wanted, but I didn't know it was possible to actually feel like you could change people's lives through a book. That's been the most delightful surprise of it all and the, the greatest joy of it. The work that you're doing does work. Just going through this book, I love that it's it's like a workbook, right? Yeah. So you know, you're, you've got your pen out, you're writing most of the time and you're looking and you're thinking and you're- Yeah, we're saying uh, in the know. beginning, like abuse that book. Like it should look horrible <laughs> when you finish. It, it's not something you want to keep in pristine condition. Right, right. It's, it's a workbook for your life. What is a powerful story that you have of someone you've worked with around imposter syndrome? I think in terms of like what it looks like for me and what the story, in essence, what the story unfolds for many people is that they often come in and they've either recognized this recently or have known it for a while that they've had imposter syndrome and they haven't been able to break it. There's a feeling of, I don't know if you can help me, but I hope you can. A lot of people have said to me, like a lot of people have taken the course and stuff. So I thought you were like a sham or bullshit artist. (laughs) Like they've said pretty boldly, like I thought you were full of shit. Um, (laughs) And at the end of this, like I never thought two people could change my life in the way that you have. And I think what it is, is that we know the tools, we clearly know how to do use them. And we know how to create the communities that, you know, kind of kind of do that. But I think the story usually is like, I've had it. I've had it. I don't want to do this anymore. As they go through the book and they go through the process, to me, it's chapter four where you have to write the angry letter. What's called actually in the book, it's called the expressive letter, but the actual technique is called the angry letter, <laughs> which we didn't want to say in the book because we thought it was a little bit too rough and provocative. So it's called the expressive letter. And to me, that's the turning point. When I see people actually take that letter seriously and write that letter and do all the steps of the letter, it's like transformed formative. That's the moment. They're like everything. And it's hard. It's an emotional thing to do. It's really hard. You have to go to some painful places. But if you can do it, you know, and let it go, there's something really freeing about it. Then it unlocks this experience for them in the sense that then they can go through the rest of the steps and they feel this sense of it can be different. I trust that it can be different. And then you see them actually practicing the skills and practicing the steps. And like you said, I'm kind of a coach at heart. I like to see concrete outcomes. So we always make them set really concrete concrete goals and to see them actually be able to achieve the concrete goals because I want them to see the difference. Here's what you couldn't do before and now see what you can do with the skills. These skills are going to have to take with them forever and I want them to trust the skills because they're hard to practice and you know dealing with your aunts and changing your narrative, doing all these different pieces, managing your self-care. It requires a commitment, but the commitment comes from believing and trusting in the skills. And I think when they see that and they're they're like, I just need to employ my skills, there's a shift. They they just I don't know how to explain it, but they just look different. Even though they haven't changed in any way, they just seem brighter. They seem present. They seem excited. They seem powerful in their own skins. There's just a difference in the way that they show up that is just so remarkable. It's hard to like fully articulate it, but that's sort of the story arc of it. That's, I think, what happens for many people who actually really take it seriously. I'm glad you zoomed out and said, what do I hope for the journey for like my ideal client, what they walk away with. And it's such a beautiful narrative. And you all have come up with this 3C strategy. And I wonder if you can share that 3C strategy. And I'm also curious, what is it about that letter? <laughs> the C's? <laughs> I don't know. That was actually, no, 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 the, the letter. The, the letter that oh, they the letter. Write. Yeah, the expressive letter. What is, what is it about that letter? One of the things that's important is we talked about family dynamics and family roles and what set this up. The reason, psychologically, the reason why the the trigger still exists is what we consider the repetition compulsion. And so that you're going to repeat something over and over and over 
over again to get it right. But sometimes you're repeating it with the wrong people. So it's always going to go wrong. And so the idea is that you have to lo- you have to let go and forgive sort of what has happened in your past in order to be able to move on and let go of repeating that cycle. It's a method of in some ways release and letting go of the repetition of the cycle. And so that's why the letter is so important. There is something that you said that struck me, which is about reassessing and learning. And it was so simple, but it also made me realize how little I do that and how easy it is to not actually reflect, look back, learn, and then try again. Especially when you when you struggle with perfectionism, we just want to get it right the first time. We're focused on mastery and really moving away from a concept of mastery and more from a growth and learning perspective and really just being in this constant state of, I'll never be expert. I'll, I'll be expert to a certain extent, but I'm never going to be perfectly expert. But it's okay. I want to keep growing. I want to keep learning. The minute I stop learning and growing, I stopped. You know, there's something that's about me that stopped. And I think it's really changing the perspective on the perfectionism in the, is the goal. Instead, growth is the goal. Growth is the goal. Learning is the goal. I think about that all the time. I mean, that incident that I told you about and where I discovered I wanted to get let go of my own imposter syndrome happened more than 15 years ago. But, you know, I discover new things about my imposter syndrome and how it shows up for me every day. About a couple months ago, I could not get out of my own head. I was wrought about some presentation. I wouldn't let it go. I just felt like I was going to screw this up. I was, I felt caught in the throes of my imposter syndrome again. And I was like, what is happening? And my husband was like, I think you just need to take a step back. So I took a step back. I started thinking about when have I ever experienced this before? What are similar themes about what's happening today that has happened in the past? I started just reflecting on what was going on. And then I discovered I have another trigger. I discovered another trigger to my imposter syndrome, which is when I've taken a break, when I've been on vacation or taken a break from something and I feel rusty, rustiness can be a trigger for me around feeling like I haven't done something in a while. And so I must be incompetent at it. And so it really then re-evokes this. And I was like, once I could discover that and like kind of assess and learn from that moment, I was able to kind of be like, okay, I've got to be careful now when I come back from a vacation or try something new to give myself a moment to reflect and have grace and like allow myself to slowly come back up to speed. And so I think it was really helpful for me in that way. And that's sort of like an example of what that means. Growth being the goal. What you are doing is you're giving people tools. And even when they finish your 12-week program and they've had this transition, it doesn't mean they'll never come back again. Even for the person studying it, you experience it. So it, it really what you're doing, it sounds like, is giving people tools so that the bounce back and the new strategy comes faster. Yeah, in like the, t- the concept in the end of the book around like lapse versus le- relapse, like we're all going to like fall back into this once in a while. And the key piece is to use the skills to not be like throw your hands up and be like this imposter syndrome is impossible to conquer. Forget it. I'm going to be here forever. What school skill or tool do I need right now to take care of myself so that I can choose a behavior that's healthier for me and my imposter syndrome in this moment? People always want to be asked if like, does it go away forever? It's not like you turn it off and it never appears ever again. The dial on it turns way, way down low. Like in the beginning, it's super high. You hear it all the time. I hear it very rarely, but I do hear it. And when I do hear it, I have something to do about it. I can do something about it. And I think that's the key. I don't have to live in the old unhealthy behaviors around the imposter syndrome that used to drive it. I can choose something different. And speaking of choose, tell us about what we need to know about the three C's to be able to get through this process. Sure. The the piece around the three C's is really understanding like the different phases of the interventions. Like, so there are a set of interventions in the book, set of tools, behaviors that you want to be using. 
And the first layer of them is understanding how did this all get started? Where did it come from? How did it get created? Where does it come from? So you can understand your own unique experience of it. In the second phase, how do you choose different behaviors? Here are some different behaviors you want to be choosing and doing things like automatic negative thoughts, countering them and thinking about your self care and these different aspects of like behavioral choices. And the final piece is about self and community. The last piece is really like what kind of roles do I typically show up in? You know, when we have imposter syndrome, we're typically like the super person. We we dive into the rescue and save everyone or we're always volunteering. Oh, you need help? I'll help you. Even if we're not looking at our bandwidth and seeing what, whether we can take that on. So we engage in these very familiar roles and really choosing different roles, like ones that are, are like ask for help and be the person who doesn't know and like really at things that are outside of our familiar comfort zone, but help us in our in community and help us in relationship, building a dream team and building community around you very strategically. Do you have a therapist? Do you have a coach? Do you have a mentor? Do you have somebody who you can rely on as an imposter syndrome expert? Like if these roles aren't filled, how are you going to fill them? And then helping people to understand like the lapse versus relapse piece. So really all of those pieces become so important to like really overcoming imposter syndrome, the system of behaviors you want to employ. Eventually they become fairly automatic, but in the beginning they require sort of intentionality. Well, and you're, you're putting so much language behind this that makes it easy to understand. So I always have respect for someone who's a scientist or psychologist that can make the normal human <laughs> feel like they get what's actually going on and relate to it versus feeling like they're reading like an academic book that has flown over their head. Well, I'm glad you said that because I remember my doctoral program when I first started, I was like, I just want to be a person who speaks plain English. <laughs> like, like this, this jargon, I will learn it. I will understand it, but I don't think it's helpful to be communicating because people miss, even people, experts in the field don't have certain jargon notions. And so I want to speak in a plain English, like, like everyone's like, your book's so simple. That's the goal. Like my goal isn't to impress you with how many words I know. It's to help you actually change. And that's a powerful gift. I don't think a lot of people have. I think you're seeing some academics try to shift into that, but it's, it is truly a gift and it's a, I don't know where it comes from, but it works. It's, it feels, I yeah, <laughs> I mean, the book feels simple. And, you know, when you talk about trying on some of these new roles and the typical roles that people play in imposter syndrome, the two that I thought were really meaningful, particularly at work, are the super person and the knowledge hub. And I can imagine you've seen that all over the place when you're working with people who are experiencing imposter syndrome. Yeah, I mean, I think we often like to run to the rescue. And I think not only in our professional lives, but also in our personal lives, we have habits of being everyone's go to. And oftentimes that leaves us depleted and drained and not our own go to. And I think it can be a very common role that has to be broken. And it can be really hard to break because it often feels really good. And it feels like you're doing good things for people, but you're often doing bad things for yourself because you're drained. And I think the knowledge hub is like, you always have to have the answer. If someone asks you the question, and you don't know, that's the ultimate and being revealed as a fraud. And I think there have been times where I don't know things about imposter syndrome and it's okay. And I get asked a question and I'm like, I'm not so sure. Here's what I think, but I'm not 100% sure that that's accurate. It's really okay to start like knowing that you can be an expert in something and not know certain things. Like you don't have to know everything and it's okay. And to be, you know, it's, it's just okay, you know? So when it comes to imposter syndrome, what do you want people to know? I want people to know that it's, you can overcome it. And you can overcome it pretty quickly, even if you've been dealing with it for decades. I think that's what people often fear is like, I've had this my whole life. There's no way. And it can be really, it can be better really quickly. But I, I want people to know that it's not something that has to define you for the rest of your life. And, and the life outside of it is 
amazing. It is truly amazing because you can be that same amazing person you are today that you may not believe is amazing and actually live in their glory. And they're pretty awesome. So, you know, and really just enjoy the the life they've created for you in a different way has a different perspective. I mean, it's, it's inspiring to, to know, and I can imagine for people who do have it to know that there's so much possibility yeah. on the I other think that's, side. I think that's what I, I think I would have yeah. wanted to know that when I was struggling, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know anyone who had ever said that they had imposter syndrome, like in real life. I do now. I know a lot of people, but I didn't know that. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to know I was going to be okay. And my husband totally was completely assured that I was going to be more than okay. But I mean, he was just one person and he had never, he, he struggled with it, but in a very different way. (laughs) And so like, it it was sort of, it was, it's sort of good to know that what's beyond is pretty exciting. Also gave me a trust in myself that I never had before. Like I could trust myself, the decisions that I made, the ways that I wanted to live, the choices that I had, the dreams that I had, I could trust them. They weren't deluded. They weren't trying to hurt me that, you know, that I could really trust me. When we got started, you said you, you were talking about community. And I'm curious if you can just share what does community and speaking the truth about your imposter syndrome do for us? I think it frees you from the shame. And it also, you find community even in it. People appreciate my vulnerability or what I share about it. But I I do it because I, I want people to feel a sense of, because I don't, you know, I feel like I want to share what I've experienced, but I also want people to feel like there's no shame in this. There's a lot of community that you can find in it and people really appreciate knowing that you've also struggled with it. And so I think it's been really a positive experience for me to share it. I mean, it took me, I will admit, it took me a very long time to share it. I remember even prepping for the TED talk and feeling fear. I was very caught up in my posture syndrome around the TED, the TEDx talk. And I was feeling fearful about some of the old stories, you know, old narrative too, about like my old boss discovering or whatever. And I just felt like it was freeing just to do that and to talk about it publicly in a way. I talked about it privately, but never publicly in that way. And so it felt very freeing to do that. It can be very freeing, I think. And I think a lot of a lot of things that you've hidden and ta- not talked about with other, like a lot of people who take my course or work with me and say, my husband said there's things about me that he knows that now that I've been working on my imposter syndrome, he, he never knew about me and now he knows and he's so grateful to know them. You allow people to in in a way to the struggles you've been having that generally you don't share with sometimes anybody. Well, I can imagine in a community, you never know who you're inspiring because you are opening up to sharing a difficult and yeah. often you know shame-provoking experience. Yeah. So I, I love that. I would love for you to answer these three questions, Lisa. Better humans are. Kind to themselves. Better work is. A place where you can truly express yourself fully. And a better world has. Diverse people who can appreciate each other in their full glory. Love it. Thank you so much. Our show is hosted by me, Leah Smart, and is produced by the amazing LinkedIn media production team. Gratitude to Dan Mills, Nicole Roach, Andy Ta, Katya Kostakova, and Lamia Bowden. Dan Lujan is the mastermind behind the scenes. Chris Eldridge did our cover art, and our music is from the ever-growing collection of APM Music. If you like our show, go on Apple Podcasts to subscribe and rate us. And if the spirit moves you, leave a review. It helps our work get out to more people like you who benefit from it. And if you want to stay in touch, subscribe to our newsletter. It's on LinkedIn, and it's called In the Arena. And lastly, you can feel free to email me at inthearena at linkedin.com. Thanks for coming on the journey with me and I'll see you next time.